Good morning. Turn to John chapter 14. We're starting our series today. Jesus, a.k.a., which stands for also known as. And today, Jesus, a.k.a., the way. Part one of a four part series. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about Billy Graham. You know how much I love Billy Graham. And recently he was returning from a trip from uh, speaking and came to the airport. And there was a long stretch black limo there. And, uh, you know, he was walking to the limo and says, you know, I'm in my 80s and I've never driven a limo. And I'm Billy Graham, so I'm going to drive the limo. So he, he asked the driver, said, look, you hop in the back. Just enjoy yourself. I know the way to my house. I want to drive. So he gets in the car and starts driving. Gets out on the freeway and there's a rookie police officer on the side of the interstate. And Billy Graham goes by him doing 70 and a 55. So the state trooper pulls him over and, you know, walks up to the window. And when the window rolls down, he realizes it's Billy Graham driving the limo. So he doesn't say anything. He just kind of walks back to his car, radios and says, Sarge, I have a problem. I know sometimes when we pull over limousines that have important people inside that they get certain courtesies. I have a big problem, though. He said, well, who'd you pull over? The governor? He said, no, somebody a lot more important than the governor. And, you know, this guy's a rookie. So the Sarge goes, who'd you pull over? The president or someone? And he says, no, this is someone a lot more important than the president. I said, well, who'd you pull over? He says, I think I pulled over Jesus because Billy Graham is driving a limo. It's <laughs> pretty good, huh? I mean, what do you think? Billy Graham's driving a limo. All right. <laughs> Jesus, a.k.a. the way. Jesus known as the way. Now, before we get into this series, we're going to be talking about the names of Jesus, the names and descriptions of Jesus over the next four weeks. And in the Bible, there are around 350 names and descriptions of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. The whole Bible talks about Yeshua, the Messiah coming to the earth. And so this week, we're going to take about 75 and then next week. Now, we're only going to take about three or four a week. But my goal is really, really simple. I want you just to think about Jesus more often. That's it. The bottom line. After this four weeks, I want you to read the Bible. And as you read the Bible, you will see Jesus in more and more scriptures after this series. That's my goal and my hope. Even studying for this series, I'm thinking more about Jesus than I've ever thought about him before. And that's a good thing. Do you agree? Well, Jesus, by the way, in the New Testament was a fairly common name. It was like John or Bill or William. If that's your name, I'm sorry, but that's a common name. And so that's why in the Bible they would say Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus, the son of Joseph, because there was a lot of little Jesus boys running around. And they said, which Jesus are you talking about? Jesus, you know, of Nazareth. Oh, that Jesus. By the way, there's another Jesus even mentioned in the New Testament. Colossians 4 talks about another man named Jesus. It was a very common name. But Jesus can trace that name all the way back to Joshua. You know that. Let me just tell you how the name Jesus came about. It started out as a name called Hosea, which was turned to uh, Moses into Yahashua, which is where we get the Greek name Joshua. Then after the exile, Yahashua or Joshua was named Yeshua, which is what the Jewish people actually called Jesus while he was walking the earth was Yeshua. They didn't say Jesus. They said Yeshua. We say Jesus because it's the Greek form of it. You know what the word Yeshua or Jesus really means? It means to save. His name identifies his purpose for coming to the earth. Yeshua means to save. 
And so that's the origin of the name. And we're going to see other names and descriptions. And in John chapter 14, verse 1, this part of Scripture is called the Holy of Holies. The final few hours of Jesus' life on the earth where he really begins to talk about eternity, begins to talk about the role of the disciples. This is called the Holy of Holies. By the way, no one said more about themselves while using less words than Jesus. Do you agree with that? No one revealed more about themselves while using fewer words than Jesus. And he does this in John chapter 14. He's talking to Thomas. Thomas knows that Jesus is about to die. And he's he's saying, I want to know the way. So let's look at this conversation. And Thomas is very upset here in verse 1. Don't be troubled. You trust God. Now trust in me. There are many rooms in my father's home and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If this were not so, I would tell you plainly. When everything is ready, I will come and get you. That's great news, by the way. That's for all of us. I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know where I'm going and how to get there. Now, I believe Jesus is assuming an awful lot here. Now, what he's saying is, Thomas, you've been with me for a long time, maybe three years or more. And I've been telling you, I'm going to heaven. I am the Messiah. And one day you're going to join me in heaven for eternity if you believe in me. And Thomas, you believe in me. Thomas still had not caught the truth of what God was trying to say. And now, verse 5, we skip over this many times because verse 6 is the real famous part of this passage. But you cannot understand verse 6 if you don't catch the question that Thomas asked in verse 5. So here's what he said, verse 5. No, we don't. No, we don't, Lord. We don't know how to get there, Lord. We haven't any idea where you're going. Now, remember, Jesus just tells Thomas, he just, basically, Thomas, Thomas, you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but obviously, you know what I'm talking about. Thomas is talking about I, I, I until it, he realizes he doesn't know the answer. And then he starts saying, we, we, we. You ever notice people do that? As long as you think they're smart, they say I. When they realize they don't have the answer, they say we. Thomas says, no, Lord, we don't know. I'm not the only one that doesn't get this, Lord. I'm not the only one. No, we don't know, Lord. We haven't any idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? Now, listen to me very closely. Every lost person on the earth today is asking that question. Lord, we believe there's a God, but we don't know the way. How do we get there? We want to be with God. How do we get there? Show us the way. They're begging the church. They're begging gateway to show them the way. And then in verse 6, in 19 words, Jesus totally changes the philosophy, everything of, of humanity with 19 words. In 19 words, Jesus totally changes our thoughts about heaven and about eternity. Verse 6, Jesus told him. That doesn't count in the 19 words, okay? The 19 words start now. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now you think about you, you're Thomas, and you hear this from Jesus. It, one of those things, just saying I'm the way, would have blown Thomas's mind. But instead he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I am the life. And no one on the earth can come to the Father except through me. With those 19 words, Jesus answers three of the greatest questions that have ever been asked by humankind. They're still being asked today. Here's the first question. How can I know God? 
Now, I want you to hear something this morning. I personally believe that there are not a great many, a great number of atheists on the earth. They may call themselves atheists until they're hanging off a cliff, you know, until they suddenly become believers. Most people, most people who even people who call themselves atheists believe that there is a higher power. They believe that there is a God in heaven. They just don't know how to describe it. They don't know how to get there. They don't agree with all the paths that do lead there. So they just call themselves an atheist because they don't understand how to get to God. But it's not that they don't believe in God. They believe they were divinely created. It's obvious that there's some higher power and they just don't understand all of it. Now, so everyone's asking, how did I get to God? And six times in the book of Acts, when people were described as being a disciple of Jesus, they were described as followers of the way. Believers in the way because of what Jesus said in John 14, I am the way. And so it began to be known. Well, you want to know the way to God? I'm a follower of the way. I'm a believer in the way. And that's how they were described in the book of Acts. So let's look now at Acts chapter four, verse 11, because I want you to really catch this truth. And I know you're asking, well, Brady, we all understand this. We know that Jesus is the only way to God. You want to hear something very alarming, though? A recent study just released by George Barna, who, in my opinion, is the foremost student of the belief systems of the American church, the foremost expert, just released a recent study, very recent. And you know what his findings found? That 60 percent of people who call themselves born again Christians in America, 60 percent of American people who call themselves born again believers are not quite sure That Jesus is the only way to God. They believe he is a way. Almost everyone agrees with that. That Jesus is a way to God. Six out of ten. Let's say there's ten people here. There's close to ten people on this front row. What they're saying is, is that we all may be nodding our head in here. But chances are that six out of the ten people sitting on this front row are not quite sure if in fact Jesus is the only way. To God in heaven. And yet everything we believe hinges on this. Do you agree? Everything we believe as a church, everything we believe hinges on the fact that he's either telling the truth or he is not. He said in John 14, I am the way. And he repeats it throughout scripture. There's so many places in scripture that I could point to. I'm just going to take you to one in Acts chapter four, verse 11. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Verse 12, there is salvation and no one else. Let me ask you a question. Is that clear or unclear? I mean, is there a lot of debate about that scripture? There is salvation in no one else. And then and just in case we haven't caught the truth of this, he repeats it again. He says this. There is no other name in all of heaven for people to call on to save them. I want you to hear something. Your children are being told something different by the world. Your grandchildren's belief system is under great attack right now. Six out of ten of born again people are not sure if this is true or not. Do you understand What's at risk here? If Jesus lied about this, then everything changes. He said, I am the way. John 10 says, he says, I am the door to the sheep. I'm the door. 
No sheep can come in unless they come through me. See, there's a popular teaching today that says that there are many paths that lead to God. That teaching is prevalent among most people outside the church. They believe that Jesus obviously is a way. He was a prophet of God, they believe. They may even say he was the son of God. But he was just a way that pointed to God. And there are many ways that point to God. Can I tell you what this feeds? It feeds our postmodern mindset. We're living now in the postmodern world. And here's what the postmodern culture teaches and believes. That all opinions are valid and that there is no absolute truth. That your opinion about God and my opinion about God should have equal weight in our discussion. And we should not worry ourselves with what is absolute truth. What we should worry ourselves about is, do you have a valid opinion? And it's valid only if you have it. If you have an opinion, then I I respect that. I need to respect your opinion. You need to respect my opinion. But let's not get caught up in absolute truth today. Listen, the problem with that is that there is an absolute truth. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Well, let's go now to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, because Jesus describes the decision to follow him to heaven as narrow and difficult. And so it it feeds into the mindset that maybe it is narrow. Maybe we are narrow minded. Maybe we haven't caught this. Maybe we need to open up our minds to other possibilities. When in actuality, this scripture is misinterpreted. I'm going to show you how it's misinterpreted. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, it says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Sounds to me like heaven's hard to find. Sounds to me like God made it pretty hard for us. Here's what Jesus was describing. He was describing the city of Jerusalem when he was painting a picture for them. He said, listen, there are some wide gates that the general public uses to get in and out of the city. They're very broad where you can get your carts in and out. And then there are some other narrow passages that maybe politicians or those who need protection or those who have specialized access. These are the narrow ways that you can get into the city. And he was he was comparing the way to eternity through Jesus as the narrow passage. And he was he was showing that the broad, open, general passage where the masses of people went in and out of the city as the way that leads to destruction. Now, if we stop right there without really thinking about the context of the scripture or what Jesus was trying to describe, we might conclude that, well, Jesus, why did you make it so hard? It's not narrow or difficult because of the requirements for entry. Salvation by grace is the easiest possible formula and idea that God could have given us. Simply believe the payment for all the sins of your past, all the sins for today and all the sins for tomorrow are taken care of if you will simply believe. And after you believe, you don't have to keep earning it by your works. Faith comes by works. Salvation's by grace. How much easier could it be for any of us? So the way to heaven is not narrow or difficult because of the requirements for entry. It is not narrow because God doesn't want a crowded heaven. You know, we want one acre lots. We want all our mansions to back up to a nice green belt. We don't want to be crowded. I mean, we're crowded in here. We're crowded in our neighborhood. So when we get to heaven, let's not let's just not let a lot of people in. It's, it's, it's not as messy that way. And I want them all that look like me and act like me. Let me ask you, a, this is a deep theological question I'm going to ask you. I want you to think about it. Do you believe that heaven is large enough 
that if every person who was ever born were to choose to follow Christ, that there would be room in heaven for those people? Do you really? You think that heaven right now is big enough. So if every person who ever walked the earth chose to believe in Christ, that there would be room in heaven for all of those people. Listen, you must believe that because it's true. It's not narrow or difficult because Jesus doesn't want a crowded heaven. It's not narrow or difficult because God is hard to find either. Jesus came and lived out in open view, preached in open view, preached in public gatherings. In front of hundreds of thousands of people either saw him, heard him, believed in him. He died a very public death. When he was resurrected, over 500 people, according to the Bible, over 500 witnesses saw him after his resurrection. And he left behind a very clear path to God. A written, very detailed account of his life and a very detailed blueprint of how to find God. And this book, by the way, is the most widely published, most widely read book that's ever been written or published. God is not hard to find. So that's not what Matthew chapter 7 is saying. Here's why Jesus said it was narrow and difficult. It's narrow and difficult only by comparison. Because we have an enemy who has strategically produced so many alternatives, thousands, hundreds of thousands of alternatives, that it seems narrow and difficult only by comparison. It's like saying Dallas-Fort Worth is a small city compared to Tokyo. Is Dallas-Fort Worth a small city? No, it's not. Have you ever been to Tokyo? Have you ever been to Mexico City? Have you ever been to Cairo? It is small in comparison to them, to all those places. That's what Jesus is saying. The road to heaven is clearly marked out. Salvation by grace. It's in plain sight. I left behind a powerful church. I left behind 2.3 billion witnesses on the earth to show you the way. It is not narrow or difficult because God's hard to find, because he doesn't want a crowded heaven. It's because the enemy has produced so many alternatives that it seems narrow and difficult only by comparison. Listen, this is the wrong question to be asking anyway. Here's what the world says. This is what the world's teaching today. Before Jesus came, there were so many ways to God and God felt like it was confusing. So he sent Jesus and said, look, all those ways now are invalid. I'm going to narrow it down to one place. And it's Jesus. That's what the world teaches, that Jesus came and that believers have made him the narrow choice because we're saying he's the only way. And all the choices that were available before Jesus are no longer valid. Here's the truth. Before Jesus came, there was no way to God. And if Jesus had not come and if he had not died, there would be no way. To God, our sins separated us from God and only one payment, only one thing on God only required one thing, the perfect sacrifice from the pure, spotless lamb of heaven. And once that was paid, he said, that's all I need now, Jesus, you are the way to God. And that is the truth. Here's the second question, by the way, that I am the way, the truth and the life answered. What is absolute truth? What is absolute truth? Are you, do you understand that there's a great debate now that there are no absolutes? There are no absolute truths. If Jesus said, I am the only way to God and no man can get to God except through me. If that is true, do you agree that that's true this morning? Ten out of ten? 
Okay, 10 out of 10, we agree. Now, if Jesus said, I'm the only way you're going to get to God, do you agree this morning that God in heaven, the Father in heaven, is the center of all absolute truth? Do you believe that? Or is there another source of absolute truth? Jesus said that the enemy, the devil, there's no truth in him. He speaks only lies. So we know that the center of all truth is only found in God the Father, right? And if Jesus said, I am the only way to God the Father, then guess what? The teachings of Jesus is absolute truth. They are absolute truth. Let me ask you a question. What do you consider absolute truth this morning for your life and for your family? What are you teaching your children and your grandchildren? What do you consider as absolute truth? Just think about what you consider. This is something for you to think about next week. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you trace the origins of those truths back to the teachings of Jesus? If you cannot trace the origins of your beliefs back to the teachings of Jesus, chances are you're believing something that's not absolute truth. That's why we must know this. You must be able to describe to your children what is absolute truth and why Jesus is the only way to God the Father in heaven. What is absolute truth? The teachings of Christ. They lead us to God, who is the source of all truth. If we believe in the teachings of Christ, then it must lead us to the source of absolute truth. And therefore, I can build my life upon those truths because he's the only way. Do you agree? All right. Now, listen, everything sounds like the truth to me sometimes. I'm, I'm an easy sell. First of all, I used, I, I'm good at sales. I'm a good salesperson. Before I came into vocational ministry, I was in marketplace ministry in, in the sales, and I was really good at it because I can make things sound really good. And I didn't lie. I'm just good at selling. So I know, I know a family called the Smiths. We'll call them the Smiths today, okay? And they're one, they're, they're, they're one of those families who spend a lot of time thinking about their genealogy, talking about their past. And they traced their family tree all the way back to the Mayflower. Some of their family came over. And since that time, they've had all kinds of famous people in their family tree. I mean, famous politicians, famous pastors, famous leaders, famous business people. And so they're getting older, and they decided to hire a well-known author to write a detailed family history. But there was one problem. Great Uncle George, who was killed in the electric chair. He was famous, too. And so they're getting ready to they, they, they talk to this author and said, listen, we have a great family history. But great Uncle George is a problem. How can we write this and present this to our children, you know, as a legacy of our family when great Uncle George is kind of there? And the author said, hey, that's no problem. I've had a lot more challenges than great Uncle George. And so he goes away, writes the family history, comes back, gives them a nice leather bound book, you know, presents it to them, several copies. And of course, where do they turn first? When they get it. Great Uncle George. All right. So here's what the author said about their great Uncle George. George Smith occupied a chair of applied electronics <laughs> at an important government institution. Was attached to his position by the strongest of ties. And his death came as a real shock. You understand, we need to know what absolute truth is. The world is very good at presenting something that sounds really wonderful and nice and truthful. Can you trace what you believe is absolute truth back to the teachings of Christ or not? If you can, 
you're believing truth. If you cannot, I believe it's time for you to reevaluate what you consider as absolute truth. Here's a third question. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he was answering the third question. How can I live forever? That's a question that everyone's been answering or asking. No one's answered it, really. You know, Ponce de Leon came to Florida in the 1500s looking for the eternal springs, you know, that gave life. You know, if you dive in, all your sickness was healed. That's all the way back to the Alexander the Great. Men have been looking for the eternal springs of life. Because the Bible says in Ecclesiastes that eternity has been planted in the hearts of men, right? That we have this feeling inside of us that life goes on after we die. That's been planted in our hearts according to Scripture. All of us, every person on the earth thinks, you know what? Something else happens after this body stops living. And so they've been asking the question, how can I live forever? Because I'm unsure of what happens after death, so I'd rather just stay right here. There are two words for life. That the Bible, in the New Testament especially, that talks about. Two Greek words for life, and Jesus teaches on both of these words. The first word is zoe, life, which is eternal life. What happens after you die for eternity? What happens to your body, your spirit, your soul after you die? Zoe, life. And the other word is bios, where we get the word biology. It means from birth to death, the natural living process that we go through of getting older and dying and aging and all those things. Jesus teaches on both of them. He he does not avoid either topic. Bios life, natural life, and zoe life. Now, Jesus came for which one do you think is most important to Jesus? Zoe life, because eternity is a lot longer than our time on the earth. So he came and spoke more often on zoe life, but he did not avoid the issue of bios life. In fact, when he healed people's bodies, it had little to do with zoe life and really a lot to do with really good bios life. Do you agree? I mean, he didn't want the woman to have the issue of blood. He didn't want the man to be blind. He didn't want the man to have leprosy or to be crippled. So he said, I want you to have great bios life. I've came to give you abundant bios life. Stand up and walk. Why would Jesus even be concerned about that if he wasn't concerned about bios life? Do you agree with that? Now, listen, there's only one place in the New Testament where he really addressed both of them at the same time. And it's in the book of John, chapter 11. And we're going to close with this story of when he came, Lazarus had died. By the way, Lazarus was his friend. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, the group, they all hung out together. They were very good friends. And Lazarus is dead. His friend. We don't know why Lazarus died. The Bible doesn't really say why Lazarus died, but he is dead. And he wasn't that far away, yet it took him four days to get there to console his very dear friends. These were not just people that he sort of knew. These were close friends, and yet Jesus waited four days to come to the funeral. In fact, the funeral was really over before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. He made a big entrance. John chapter 11, verse 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to pay their respects and console Martha and Mary on their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You understood that she had a sense, Martha had a sense that Jesus had authority over both Bios life. I don't know if she understood, but she's about to, that Jesus had authority over Zoe life. He says, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, when everyone else rises on resurrection day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection 
and the Zoe life. Those who believe in me, even though they die like everyone else, they will live again. They are given eternal life for believing in me and will never perish. He's, wait, no, wait, he just said two different things there. He said, though they will die, and then he says they will not perish. You understand what Jesus was saying? He said, though their bios life no longer exists, they will never taste death. Now, I want you to hear something this morning. I want to change your definition of death. Death is not when we take our last breath and are sent to the grave. Let me tell you what the real definition of death is. Because our Zoe life, regardless if you believe in Christ or not, your Zoe life is an eternal thing. It will continue to go on after you're dead. Whether you believe in Christ or not, your Zoe life will continue. Here's what the definition of death is. Eternal, complete separation from God. And only those who don't believe in Christ will taste death. Because those of us who believe, according to what Jesus just said, will never perish. We'll never be separated from God. Now, my dad passed away in December and he chose to die at home. And we were all there. We knew the time was getting close for him to die. And in the back bedroom, we had a bed set up. And two in the morning, he took his last breath. A couple of minutes after he passed away, I'm watching him, looking at his body. We're sad. We're crying. We miss him already. And while I'm watching my dad, who was a believer, this is what came to me in such a strong way. Is this all I've been afraid of? Lord, my dad's never tasted death, has he? He took a deep breath like this. And he stepped into heaven. Lord, is this all I've been afraid of? And here's what the Lord said back to me. Brady... I want you to be free from the fear of dying so that you will be free from the fear of living. And Brady, there's nothing to be afraid of. Brady, when your life belongs to me, you have eternal Zoe life and you will never taste death. And so Jesus is saying that to Martha. And then he says, now Martha, just to prove to you and all those who will read this story that I have absolute authority over Zoe life and over Bios life, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus stepped out of heaven back onto the earth. And for Jesus, it was a seamless transition. Just like it's a seamless transition for us to pass from Bios to Zoe life. And here's the good news. Do you know how you can guarantee today that you'll never taste death? Simply ask the Lord into your heart. And once you have made that decision, death is no longer your master. You will no longer be afraid to live and you'll no longer be afraid to die because death has no control over you any longer. Would you close your eyes this morning and let me pray for you? And I want to pray especially for those of you this morning who have never asked the Lord Jesus to come and give you eternal Zoe life. He's the Lord over both this morning. He's the Lord over Bios life. And by the way, I want to pray for those of you who need healing in your body because the Lord Jesus has complete, absolute authority over Bios life. He wants you to live life abundantly while on the earth. And he died so that you would have abundant life forever with him. That's just too good a deal to pass up, isn't it? 
If you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus to come, maybe you believe in Jesus, maybe you trust Jesus lives in heaven, but you've never given Him complete authority over your life. And here's a simple prayer that if you'll pray this today, that issue will be settled and you can get on with living. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know you died for me. Come now and live in my heart. I give you control of my life. From this day forward, be my Lord. I'm a sheep of your pasture. If you'll pray that simple prayer right now, right where you're sitting, the Lord will come and He'll take death out of your equation. You see, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, you cannot live. You can start living today if you'll let Him come into your heart. Lord, we just pray right now in Jesus' name for Your Holy Spirit to come. Lord, convict every heart in this room. Lord, let us not be deceived in thinking that things are right if they are not. Lord, You are good and perfect to let us know if things are really right between us and You because You came to give us eternal life. This is Your business, Lord, and not ours. Lord, today, right now, I pray for every person in the room to be honest before You and not before me or other people, but to be honest with You. If you're here today and you want to make a decision right now, I need Jesus in my life. Every service we've had people get saved this weekend. Every service people have given their lives to the Lord. And I believe that there are those of you here today, by lifting your hand and coming forward in just a minute, you're going to make the best best decision you've ever made. If you're here today and you want Zoe life, if you want eternal life with the Lord, would you just lift your hands right now and say, Pastor Brady, I want to pray that prayer today. I prayed that prayer. I believe that. Thank you for the hands. Is there anyone else? There's other hands? There's some of you here today. You've never made the decision, but you made it today. And you want to make it right now. Would you lift your hands and let me pray for you? In just a moment, we're going to stand. Our altar ministry team is going to come forward. And when they do, can you just come forward and let them pray for you one more time? Now, I want to pray for another group. Those of you who are afraid of living or afraid of dying. Maybe you need healing in your body. Maybe you have a fear of death. Maybe you have a fear of something sudden happening to you, but you want that to be broken in your life today. You want to get on with Bios life. Would you lift your hand right now? Let me pray for you and let that be broken in your life. Lots of hands. If that's you right now, there's a fear that you want just broken in your life. I want to get on with living. Lord, I pray right now that the fear of death and the fear of living, Lord, would be broken in every person's heart in this room. Lord, I pray right now, we thank you that you came to give us life and life abundantly. Thank you this morning that that fear is broken and has no longer control over our lives. Lord, you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. And we're grateful today for all of those things in Jesus' name. Amen.